0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: So hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, a postdoctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases in EPFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. So today we'll be talking to Dr. Jeremy England about his new book, Every Life is on Fire, How Thermodynamics Explains the Origins of Living Things. So in his book, uh, Dr. England presents for the first time for the general audience his groundbreaking theory of dissipative adaptation. Uh, Described simply in an ordered system, matter clumps together and breaks apart mostly randomly. But, mo- but some of the clumps that form momentarily dissipate more energy, and these structures are less likely to par- fall apart. So over time, they become better at both with studying the disorder surrounding them and creating copies of themselves. So in Every Life is on Fire, uh, Dr. England walks readers through a range of different concepts in physics and biology to sketch out his novel description of how life might emerge. Uh, He describes uh, what he sees as a remarkable synergy between the account of life's origin uh, uh, given by physics and the account given in the Hebrew Bible. Full of scientific and philosophical thought, Every Life is on Fire is a singular book from one of the most exciting physicists of his generation. Uh, Jeremy England is a senior uh, director in artificial intelligence at Glasgow Smith Klein, principal research scientist at Georgia Tech, and is the former uh, Thomas and Virginia Cabot Career Development Associate Professor of, of Physics at MIT. He was a Rhodes Scholar, a Hertz Fellow, and was named one of the Forbes 30 Under 30 Rising Stars in Science. And he lives lives in uh, Brooklyn, um, Massachusetts. Um, so, Dr. England, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Great. So, uh, first of all, I would like to start by asking you, so how are you living through these unprecedented times and how, is, how, how has the pandemic influenced your, you and your work?
0: That's well, an interesting way to kick things off. Um, it's, it's certainly been uh, a peculiar year. Um, I, I think in some ways, obviously, and I'm sure this is true for, for most people, there's been some added stress um, and some added discomfort and a lot of things to adapt to. Um, Thank God. I think my family have been healthy and mostly doing well through all of it. And I I think the nice thing is that there are all of these strange ways in which life is different when the world is bent into such a strange shape. And as a result, you can find new things uh, to either enjoy or appreciate uh, even in the midst of all of the, I don't know, misery or or confusion. Um, So, you know, I think we've been trying to make the best of it.
1: Yes, that's right. And it uh, sort of makes you rethink your priorities as well, doesn't it? A little bit.
0: Certainly. Um, And I don't know, to just kind of question things that you'd assumed always had to be a certain way. And now you've been forced to do them a different way. And there are some advantages to that um, in terms of, you know, how one's working or, uh, what one does with one's family or things like that. So it's certainly an interesting time for contemplation in that regard.
1: Okay. So could you please tell us how you got interested in studying physics?
0: Sure. Yeah. I think from a pretty young age, I was very interested in the natural sciences as a whole, or at least my first taste of that, which as for many little kids is dinosaurs and Um. By the time I was maybe in elementary school or going into middle school, I was starting to learn about physics by reading in Scientific American or reading A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking. And I, I think there were a lot of things I really didn't understand at all about what I was reading, but it just gave me a taste of this idea that you could have very simple principles that could be very, very be very powerful in giving a unified description of a whole lot of different phenomena of the world. Um, and so... I was excited by that and I think then I was reading Roger Penrose for a while because he had this uh, idea at the time, the full coherence of which I'm not totally certain at this remove from it all, but I think at the time it really fascinated me of how the unification of quantum theory and gravity might be the thing that we need to explain the mechanism of consciousness in the brain. And, you know, he wrote some books about that. And I I, I got really enthralled by that. And so I, this was all before I was really learning phys- physics very rigorously, but I think I just had from a young age, a, a sense of the uh, grandeur of what you could hope to touch with a few simple ideas. Um, and so that there was that side of things. And then I think as I, I was studying in high school, I started learning more about biology, and there what I got really captivated by on the flip side was the particularity of biological systems in how they work, you know, that you can have a particular protein that's just the right shape in order to do something very chemically specific that's essential for how a living thing works, and so you have all of this form-function relationship that's based on physical chemical relationships, but it's very intricate and refined and precise, in this way, where you know in biological systems everything is different. You know, horses and zebras are not the same thing. You know, so there's always like a resemblance between two things, but they always are unique in their details, and they accomplish what they're doing in particular ways. Um, and I, I I got really caught up by that idea as well, and I didn't want to stop learning about either of them and studying either of them. So by the time I was studying in university, I knew I both wanted to learn a lot more about theoretical physics, which I did. Um, but also that I wanted to keep working on biological systems, which I, in the research course that I pursued, um, insisted on doing. And so, by the time I was finishing up my undergraduate degree, I was very much a theoretical biophysicist in the making.
1: This is very bold approach to try and bridge biology and theoretical physics. So, um, did you did you find it? even a little bit hard to actually reconcile those two or how did you approach it
0: well i think when i was getting my start there was already a very rich field and rich literature of theoretical biophysics that i i would say operated in the following way that typically what you would do is you would take a piece of a living thing and you would have some function that it was accomplishing that you'd like to understand, and then maybe there's kind of a puzzle to solve of how simple physical principles might be able to explain that function to you. So, sometimes the way that a function is accomplished by a form is I don't know, if not obvious, at least something you don't have to think very hard to work out. And then there are these kind of more puzzling situations where you kind of know or you hypothesize that there are simple physical principles that underlie what you're seeing, but what you're seeing seems so functionally successful uh, that it impresses you. And at the same time, you don't know how it's really doing it yet. And so you have that to to work that out. Um, And and particularly, I got pulled into the, the protein folding field, which is very much in this vein, Um, You know, so proteins are the chemical workhorses of the cell, so most of the dry weight of a cell, of a living cell, is protein, which are these strings of amino acids that have all these different linear assemblies based on 20 different possible amino acids you could be built out of, so you have this huge space of possible sequences of amino acids you could string together, and then many of them, when you throw them in water, they fold kind of like a pop tent, or, or you know, some kind of spring-loaded system in a sense, into a particular shape that uh, is going to particularly accomplish the function that that protein molecule needs to in the cell. And so there's this very appealing kind of aspect uh, to this problem for the mind of a theoretical physicist because it's a relatively universal problem in biology that you have all these different amino acid sequences that are being assembled from the genetic code and then you want to understand how you get architecture and function from those and there's a physics problem in between where you're trying to understand why this chain of all these knobbly chemical groups is going to fold into a particular shape. So. That is how I got my start uh, in theoretical biophysics as a biochemistry major when I was an undergraduate at Harvard. And then uh, I really ran with that for a ways. I, I did some work in some other areas as well. But one at one point or another, I was always kind of reconnecting with the pr- protein folding field because there are many aspects of that to think about. And it always is working in this iteration of, all right, let me look at the living thing, let me see something it's doing that I find interesting or impressive and I can't understand, and I'm going to develop a hypothesis about how to explain or how to predict the behavior using this physical principle and then, you know, see how well you can do. Uh, and there's still a lot of biophysics research that research that goes on like that today, and it's still a very rich field, and, and there's always more to discover this way because almost by definition, when you're kind of taking pieces of biological systems and and examining them, there's a combinatorial universe of possible things that you could take apart and put back together where there are new things to be understood. So um, that's still going on. And and, and until relatively recently, it was a big part of the research in my lab when I was at MIT. But then what I started to get pulled into and, and really, I think, goes back to some of the questions I wondered about at the beginning of my interest in biology and physics. Um, what I started to get pulled into when I was starting my lab at MIT, I guess nine years ago or something like that, uh, was not how you would use physics to explain how some piece of a biological system that you know works, but more how do you use physics to try to explain why matter would get into that kind of shape in the first place. Because the question that it always is kind of nagging at you a little bit when you're trying to understand biological systems as a theoretical physicist is... Given what you can learn about its structure, you can now start to tell the story of how physics can be used to explain how it achieves some function. But these forms that matter is found in, when you start looking at how biological systems work, don't seem like random collections of the particles or the building blocks out of which they're made. They seem like highly specialized collections of these particles. It's it's quite clear that either just to intuition or even to experiment, that if you randomly rearrange the parts of these systems, uh, whether at the molecular level or in some higher, you know, uh, scale, that you're not going to get something that's as good at what it's supposed to do. If you put a lung in a blender, I'm sorry, that's gruesome, but if you put a lung in a blender, then afterwards, it's not going to be as good at doing what a lung is supposed to do. And also if you put a protein, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so also if you, you know, take a protein apart into its constituent amino acids and put them back randomly together, it's very unlikely to be as good at catalyzing some particular chemical reaction uh, that it's supposed to be catalyzing. So, you know, there's really a a lot of of ways that you can play that out in the biological context. Um, And it always is the same question, which is, if I start with matter that isn't arranged like this, that how does it get that way? Because much of the history of molecular biology has been so far kind of figuring out how it remains that way or how it perpetuates itself, right? That if you have a living thing, how does that living thing copy its DNA? How does that living thing make proteins from its DNA? And you can tell that whole rich story and it's very impressive and, and magnificent and beautiful, but always at the start, the premise is, You have matter that's already in this intricately special arrangement that's capable of all of these things, and now it can keep on taking matter in its surroundings and making more copies of itself or what have you. But the question of how you start from what you call inanimate or naive or kind of randomly jumbled matter and get into a state that looks impressive in this lifelike way, that's the thing that I think I I always was curious about and that I really didn't feel like I was capable of addressing Uh, for a very long time, and then it just kind of gradually started to seem like there was maybe a way forward in in some of the um, ideas I I got to thinking about early on um, in my career at MIT. And really, maybe like when I was finishing up my postdoc um, uh, right before that, that's when really those seeds started germinating.
1: Uh, yeah, it appears that you are really driven by your inquisitiveness in your scientific career, so trying to bridge uh, different fields even even without a specific uh, intent to do that, but just to figure things out, isn't it? So can you just maybe reflect on your career cho- choices and what sort of lessons you've learned along that could be perhaps useful to the early career, career scientist listener? Sure,
0: sure. Yeah, I, I think... Um... That's an interesting question. I mean, I think for me, um, what's certainly true is that from an early point, I kind of referred to this before, I felt a bit stubborn about not wanting to stop doing two things that I found interesting that were pretty hard to mix together at the outset. Um, And I do think a lot of people were drawn specifically into the protein folding field because of that same frustration, right? Because protein folding has this appeal of physical universalism in a biological context because every living thing has proteins. And so for once you feel like you're working on something that touches everything that's going on, which is kind of the hankering that physicists have in in their theories, Um, whereas there are a lot of other things that you can do even in theory and in biophysics, where what you're going to have figured out at the end is how one particular piece of the biological world works, and it may not necessarily apply broadly to a lot of other things, and that's okay, and it still can be great science, but I think protein folding, maybe as a field, when it it got its early start, drew people in because of that desire to do both things at once, Um, and and I think what that meant for me initially was that I was a biochemistry major as an undergraduate, but I sort of, you know, figured out according to the rules of my degree that you were allowed to take as much physics as you want and have it count for the degree, because I think they never thought that this would go awry in the way that it did in my case, because as a result, I, I took some biology, but I took a lot of physics, but because I wasn't in a physics major, I didn't take the physics courses that I didn't want to. So I, I didn't study optics at all until a very late stage uh, in my education, and I'm still pretty uh, much a novice at it. Uh, because I didn't have a degree in physics as an undergraduate, um, but then I I did take some more, you know, some things that are thought to be more advanced uh, courses in theoretical physics as an undergraduate while doing my degree in biochemistry. So it was sort of a a mess, but it was you know a beautiful mess in the sense that you can combine things in new ways when you kind of learn more than one language um, fluently. Um, a, a sort of as, as a mother tongue. Um, and, and I do think that there is kind of a, 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 a different attitude one maybe feels more comfortable having if you don't feel like a foreigner to biology. I actually think a lot of physicists who do theoretical biophysics, especially of an earlier generation, they came in from theoretical physics. And then there was a lot of um, maybe, uh, let's say, a motivation to prove to biologists that what they were doing was important and interesting, which meant accepting a lot of the culture and standards of experimental biologists in terms of deciding what were important questions to try to answer. And so that doesn't mean you don't do good science that way, but it does mean you focus your fire in a particular kind of question. Um, And I I do think that maybe getting my start in biology, and despite that becoming a physicist, sort of doing something in in a different order than, than people usually do, maybe made me feel a little bit more confident, kind of saying, well, you know, I like learning about biology and these questions are interesting, but here's what I'm really interested to to find out and, and, and just kind of run with it and, and see where it goes. But I think it also exposes you always to the risk of falling between the cracks in terms of, you know, making sure that you have a community of people that are interested in reading the kind of paper that you want to write or making sure that you have mentors and, and people along the way who uh, can can really uh, not just open doors, but also just kind of uh, socialize you within a community of scientists, because really science is a social process. It's It's about people convincing each other of the merit of their ideas through dialogue. And if you do science by yourself... Uh, on the moon with no one else there, you're not really yet a scientist uh, and uh, because it, you almost can't distinguish what you're thinking and observing from hallucination until you start checking it against what other people are thinking and observing.
1: Yeah, this is really refreshing to hear that you can sort of push yourself out of your comfort zone and try to, to do something slightly different different from everyone else. But uh, yeah, I understand that the, uh, the community is really, really important, isn't it?
0: On that point, actually, I'll just add one more thing. I think that um, on the one hand, clearly biophysics is almost like the fractal boundary between two different scientific fields instead of being a field itself. And, you know, people would call it interdisciplinary. And I think there's a lot of very interesting research that can happen that's interdisciplinary. But there's almost a countervailing... Uh, excitement these days about interdisciplinary work. And I I will say that I think we shouldn't rush to discard the idea of disciplines just because interdisciplinarity can produce excitement. Because if you don't have disciplines at all, it's sort of like the difference between being good at translating between two different languages versus there not being any shared grammar for one language that people can actually talk in. Uh, So I don't actually mind necessarily that there wasn't like a interdisciplinary theoretical biophysics degree that I could do as an undergraduate and that instead I was sort of doing the gymnastics of trying to straddle between a field where people were posing one kind of expectations of me as a biologist and other kinds of expectations as a physicist uh, because I think that in in some ways there's great value in learning both kinds of grammar or both kinds of discipline or both kinds of language Uh, and, and that's actually thematically something that it comes up a lot in the book um, that I guess we're discussing today and, and I, think, I think is another sort of um, generator of the kind of research that I've ended up getting interested in. I think that conscious translation between different ways of describing the same system is really important as an intellectual foundation for trying to start talking about what you could mean by the emergence of lifelikeness.
1: Uh, yeah, that's right. and I think it's uh, one of the really most appealing parts of uh, of the book. Uh, you do speak uh, about um, physical uh, physics co- uh, concepts which are quite complex, but when you go to the biological part, it even sometimes even feels much much more intuitive even and you get really absorbed into that into that you know unknown. And I think you' kind of laid out uh, uh, quite a few concepts really clearly. So, can you just tell us how come? Uh, uh, how did you come to writing uh, this book?
0: Certainly. Um, so, I guess there's there's a few different stages one could describe. So, first of all, and this gets to what I was just referring to, which also, in some sense, is the story of of how my research got pulled in this direction. Uh, I think that sometimes we think that science is one language. But I would argue it's really a methodology or a meta-language or something that embraces different languages that are ways of describing the world in different terms. So what I mean by that is that if you compare biology and physics, they really found themselves in different categories and standards. So physics, on the one hand, is inherently quantitative. It's about basic measurements like distance and time and quantification of an amount of substance, things of that nature. And then you start taking those numbers that you have, uh, let's say, you know, posited are accurate descriptions of the world you're observing by devising methods of measurement. Um, and, and you take those numbers and you start saying, can I make a theory of how these numbers would allow me to predict these other numbers? In, bi- in biology, especially these days, things can get extremely quantitative, but biology is not In principle, a quantitative science in the way that physics is. In principle, to do science and biology, you could operate in a completely qualitative space, right? Like if you want to just keep on chopping heads off chickens and then determine that it always leads to the death of a chicken, you have the concept of something that's alive and, and an ability to judge that and the ability to judge when it's not alive anymore. And you have an experiment you can do where you can establish an empirical law. And it's not really about percentage of the time that this happens. It's it's quite qualitative. Uh, and you can be a great biological scientist. And, and most, if not all biologists early on really were this kind of biologist uh, by being, by making qualitative observations and showing how to do good empirical science on the relationships between those observations. So I think that what that means is that you always have to recognize that if you're gonna start talking about a biological system from the perspective of physics, there's going to be the intuitive role played by the translator in between um, while you're trying to sort of figure out the way of expressing what it means in physical terms to have a certain biological property. Um, So the example that I, have sometimes facetiously used in the past, because physicists like endangering cats in their thought experiments, is that if you took a cat to the top of the Tower of Pisa or something and and did the Galilean experiment, and you dropped a cat off the tower, um, you could both talk about how fast the cat is moving when it hits the ground, And you also could talk about the question of whether the cat is alive afterwards. And on the one hand, while it's clearly true that whether the cat survives the ordeal is quite related to the question of how fast it's moving when it hits the ground, it's never gonna be the case that asking whether it's alive or not is the same thing as asking how how fast it is moving or was moving. One of those questions is a physically well-defined question. And the other one is speaking in the qualitative terms uh, that biology founds itself on. So the reason I think that's important is because we have to recognize when we do translations that there's always the the intuitive role of the translator in figuring out what's a good or bad translation. It may be that there are better and worse translations, but there's an infinity of good translations and just an even larger infinity of terrible ones. And so what that means is we're always going to have to argue for the appropriateness of a description in one set of terms of the phenomenon that we are, first of all, interested in the other set of terms. And I think once I got some clarity thinking about that um, during my postdoc, because I was kind of wondering about it from various perspectives, kind of partly because I had been working on some things in developmental biology and was wondering about how many numbers you would need to describe whether a embryo was developing healthily or not, and, and kind of Pulled me down a rabbit hole that didn't lead anywhere fruitful as far as papers or anything but um you know i, I started thinking those terms and I, I think by the time i i finished up my postdoc and i was headed into starting um, my own lab i was really saying okay so here's a well-defined question that i can on the one hand describe physically and on the other hand i am interested in it because it's part of what i want to understand in biology um, and that was self-replication so i said can I think thermodynamically about the conditions under which self-replication will either be forbidden or permitted according to physical laws that I'm going to posit are the ones that I have to obey, and also um, according to a definition of self-replication that can be expressed in physical terms. And what that means is that you're not talking about biology anymore. You're definitely talking in the language of physics, and whatever you show, is gonna ultimately be true, not just for biological self-replicators, but also for other examples of self-replicators that aren't necessarily alive. Um, but that's that was the sort of divide and conquer kind of approach getting rolling, where I was starting to think, let me take the living thing, let me think about it from the perspective of physics and ask what are the different, distinctively lifelike behaviors that a living thing engages in. Not unique to life necessarily, certainly each on their own barrel, right? There are self-replicators that are not alive. There are predictors of the surrounding environment uh, systems that can predict their environment that are not alive necessarily. There are energy harvesting systems that are not alive. But When you start putting all these things together, like and you say, I have a modular self-replicator that predicts its environment, and harvests energy from its surroundings, and you start making that list, it sounds like, oh, that's life described in physical terms. But I think the important thing is to say, since I'm translating into physics and since I'm trying to approach these things in a crisp, clean way as a theoretical physicist, let me try to make a theory of when self-replication is allowed or forbidden or when self-replicators can emerge. Or let me try to make a theory of how emergent predictive behavior in a system that's interacting with a pattern environment gets going. And in each case, at the end, I don't have a theory of life or a definition of life. What I have is a theory of how, or a mechanism for how a certain lifelike behavior might get going uh, from a context that is initially more naive looking, and I start to maybe learn something more about the physics of how lifelike behaviors separately are permitted or forbidden according to physical assumptions or could even emerge under conditions that you can define clearly.
1: Um, Yeah, I understand that, absolutely. And uh, it's really interesting perspective um, I have a question, uh, perhaps one of the most uh, pervasive sort of criticism, about uh, bridging this, uh, physical and biological worlds is, is about the different, um, sort of levels on, of operation where biology operate, operates compared to physics. Like you mentioned that there are crisp and clean ways in physics to do mm-hmm. stuff, but yeah. when we go to biology, it's quite messy. So, um, yeah. how do you reconcile these?
0: Yeah, no, I think that is the the ultimate uh, challenge in, in many ways. And in some ways, um, you know, I, I think that that probably would have been my answer as for why I was kind of too intimidated to think much about this question at an earlier stage in my career. Like, I think if you talked to me when I was doing my PhD or something like that, um, I would have pointed to, <clears throat> excuse me, I would have pointed to. The hierarchy of scales in biological systems as being a really thorny problem because, whereas, you know, successful physical theories in condensed matter, uh, whether in hard condensed matter or soft condensed matter, you know, statistical mechanics describing systems with many parts, the ones that are most famous and most successful, they usually end up taking something that looks complicated and realizing there's this beautiful simplicity to it because of symmetry or because of uh, some sense in which the Many degrees of freedom of the system can really be described by a much smaller set of numbers that capture everything relevant to your interest in what's going on in the system. Um, and so all this stuff with theory of phase transitions or theory of exotic phases of matter or what have you, you know, it works in one way or another kind of like that. And then the problem that you have um, where where you go to uh, the the biological problems is that they're so unsymmetrical and they're so unwilling to, to, to give you a small number of potentially relevant physical quantities. Because, for example, you don't just have one link scale that matters. You have this whole hierarchy of link scales. You have this whole hierarchy of energy scales. You have this whole hierarchy of time scales. And so it just feels, it does sometimes feel like a hopeless mess. And I do think, um, I, I don't want to say I do think it is a hopeless mess coming from the, the biological direction, but more that um, if you had started out only Coming from the biological direction, it I think it might be just too messy to really start to make sense of it for first principles very easily, because of all of the cacophony of, you know, like I was saying before, just the the, the difference between horses and zebras multiplied by every single you know molecule that you could be comparing, um, and having to struggle with that. It's it's from the standpoint of physics, it's a system in an exquisitely special unknown initial condition, and that's just not good grist for the mill with theories of many body systems um that have worked well in physics in the past but i think that what what makes me feel a little bit more like maybe we'll get there one day and i don't think we remotely have yet um but but what what gives me a little more confidence now is thinking of it in terms of how you bring what we usually think of as evolution on the time scale of organisms copying themselves or genes or other memes propagating themselves um that kind of selection principle guiding evolution on the timescales that are necessary for it to matter to the the forms of uh, biological organisms, starting to generalize that into a physics idea about evolution that can be more relevant to the dynamics that we usually think of as being very hopelessly messy. So the same way that um, we can recognize adaptation in living things um that uh, has cl- where there's a clear relationship between form and function and in a way that uh, matches our understanding of what it takes to survive and reproduce in an environment. The question is, can there be a generalization of this principle that doesn't require things to be copying themselves and that might operate on shorter time scales, but that gives you kind of a a thing to look for, a smoking gun to look for where you can go into the biological system into the mess and discover, a hidden exceptionalness to how it's all organized. If you have the right principle or frame, the right detector, so to speak, the right uh, kind of uh, theoretical frame to guide you in what quantities to compute, so that you could start to say, "Oh, here's where some of the hidden order is that I, I've been missing in, in the midst of this mess." Um, and, and I think that that um, you know we we might get a level deeper with this um, uh, later in this discussion. But I'll just say that for me, comes back to, like I was saying before, this this hopelessness of hierarchy of scales. I used to think to myself, how can you make a theory that describes what a cell does in a predictive way when there are 12 atoms in the DNA of a cell which might, if you change them, kill the whole cell, if you you were very smart about how you mutated some gene, and then if you took any comparable number of a dozen or a few dozen atoms in the protein's uh, of that cell, you probably would make no noticeable biological difference, or at least you'd have to be much more careful about how you targeted that if you wanted to try to do so, because changing a single protein, which has hundreds or thousands of atoms, is probably just going to you know, be like a, a mosquito buzzing in a hurricane as far as everything going on in the cell. But something about the role DNA plays, you have this much smaller number of atoms that have this outsized outsize influence on how everything is happening. And I think there are physical reasons now to uh, expect the emergence of that kind of relationship in a many-body system with a patterned environment. And and, and th- you start to be able to argue for how to recognize that kind of relationship and when to look for it. Um, and, and so I think that's one aspect of what's exciting about co- coming to this from the standpoint of physics is that some of the things that we take to be sort of arbitrary and frustrating about the biological system may really be reflections of of some general physical principles that we have to approach in a more evolutionary way.
1: Interesting. So do you think the, from experimental point of view, we are sort of trying to get closer to um, reining in all of this messiness of biology uh, with experiments like uh, targeted evolution of proteins in vitro. So it's approach that was awarded a Nobel prize recently. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, Yeah, actually You know, it's interesting you mentioned that. So I do think that directed evolution is an interesting example of how you take something that is, um, let's say, all right, so I'll back up. We come first to the idea of natural selection and evolution as a way of trying to explain things about what we observe about the biological world in its current state. But then the real proof of how powerful the principle is in some ways uh, is when you can take it to an experimental system and show that it makes you better at creating things with novel functionality as Francis Arnold and others did, um, as you mentioned. And, and I think that what we can talk about in similar terms now is that if if I am thinking about how to get matter to do things that I want it to do, there's a whole aspect of what understanding an evolutionary principle for physical dynamics, um, uh, there's an whole aspect of what understanding an evolutionary principle for physical dynamics reveals that is really, I think, ultimately going to be best demonstrated if we can start to say, look, here's something that I made and it computes in a novel way. It predicts in a novel way. It's useful. um, It's designed according to this principle. And that's how you start to really be able to increase your confidence that this this can be powerfully predictive uh, for the behavior of matter in circumstances that maybe mirror things uh, that you imagine might be relevant to the emergence of life-like behaviors. So, to talk about a particular example, one of the things I mentioned before is there are lots of different life-like behaviors, and I think one of the things that means is that you're not going to be able to address it all at once. So. We have to go behavior by behavior and think about um, the physics of each of them. And some of them come from common physics, but um, they look like different aspects of it. Uh, so the, the basic idea from a physical standpoint uh, that underlies uh, the dissipative adaptation idea that's described in the book um, and, and also in a number of research articles um, from my group, first at MIT and uh, more recently, Georgia Tech, uh, the, the basic idea is this. If you have a collection of particles that can be assembled in lots of different ways, then they are going to be able to change shape according to the forces that are pushing on them in their environment in ways that depend on their current shape. So the classic example of this is that if I have an external environment with some patterned signal, like I'm singing at a particular pitch, I'm an opera singer who's singing you know, this high note, and I'm singing at a glass, that if a glass is in one shape, it might resonate a lot and move really well with the song, and then it could even break because it absorbs a lot of energy from that song. But the same material, if it were just in a different shape, might not resonate. And as a result, it might not change shape significantly and, and certainly wouldn't break because it just is a different quality of receiver for the same external environment. So if you have one of these active environments that have the ability to dump energy into you over time, and there's some pattern to the way that they do that, whether it's a chemical pattern or a mechanical pattern in timing or in, uh, let's say, uh, you know, a a pattern in the frequency of light, you know, color of photons, whatever, whatever you want to talk about, there are different kinds of pattern sources of energy that you could have. And if you talk about, The structure of a bunch of chemicals that are assembled together a bunch of mechanical building blocks or anything that has this diversity of properties as you assemble them in different ways what you're going to find is that there's a feedback loop that closes where if i'm in a particular shape now that shape will have an impact on how i absorb energy from the environment but then that energy becomes my ticket to changing in shape in certain ways and so I don't have parents and grandparents if I'm not a biological system or I'm not a self-replicator, but I do have structures I used to be in. And the history and the evolutionary selection uh, of this kind of driven many-body system with a patterned environment is going to be told in terms of the antecedent structures to your current one. What is your history? What shapes did you used to be in? How much energy were they able to absorb from the environment and from the sort of pattern sources of the environment? So how did the matching between the structure of the system in the past and the pattern of the environment end up impacting its continued changing in shape? And then where did that lead you? Where What, what is the biased exploration of this space of possible shapes or states that you went through over time as a result? So when you close that loop, You start to end up having different kinds of selection principles that can be brought to bear and now it breaks into cases there are cases where you can have feedback that leads to increasing the system's ability to absorb energy from the song so to speak of the environment over time there also are other feedback processes that can lead to the opposite effect where you become very robust you you self-organize into a special shape that's recognizably exceptional in the sense that although the environment has energy it could deliver That the system is inert and just it moves a bit but it doesn't get broken into smithereens by an environment that could deliver enough energy to do so if the system weren't in this special shape so there are different things like that where i would point to each of them as archetypally something that living things are doing Um, and once you start to think in those terms you start to be able to say well what could i actually do with this you know can i can i compute something with this because if i have for example a system that has many different degrees of freedom, many different particles or whatever else that are jumping around and combining in different ways into different shapes, different states for the system. And if those states have different ability to absorb energy from their environment, depending on the pattern of the environment, then I could imagine a situation where, for example, I have an environment with one pattern and the system ends up in some specialized state that's matched to that pattern. And then the pattern of the environment changes And now, suddenly, there should be this big response where the system is undergoing much bigger rearrangements and trying to get into a specially fine-tuned shape that's matched to that new environment. So we have a paper, um, actually a couple papers, for a system that that works just like that. Um, The most recent one where we have these bar-coded forces that have these very finely crenellated patterns in time and over the whole collection of particles that are being poked uh, in terms of which things are getting poked up and which things are getting poked down and with what timing. And so you have this whole pattern of barcodes that you're jumping through and the system has this rate of energy absorption that you can measure and that kind of settles down and it starts absorbing less energy as it settles into this State that's more inert or more uh, in tune with the environment, and then you suddenly change the bar the barcode to a different random family of barcodes um, from you know the same random family from which you generated the first environment, and you get this big jump where suddenly the system's large scale rearrangements spike up, and there's a lot more energy absorption, and then things settle down again. So what you're describing then. Is a system where it was totally naive at the beginning you started sort of knocking it with a pattern it jumbled around it got into a shape that was good at jumping in step with that pattern and then when you change the pattern you can tell the system knows it because it reacts in a qualitatively different and observable way so it's become this thing that's kind of computing and sensing in the sense that it is reacting to the novelty of a change in its environment so there's a complex novelty you started with one random barcode you switch to another one and the system has learned almost like a machine learner in order to respond that way so that's a an example not of what you call life at the end but maybe what you'd call a computing application quite akin uh to directed evolution uh which uh to directed evolution in the in the natural selection with self-replicator sense that you mentioned, um, which helps you kind of gain confidence that if you can make this into a tool whose properties you can predict, then you have a physical principle that will be good for something and maybe is then grist for the mill in, in thinking about how lifelikeness might emerge.
1: Interesting. And um, does this also involve the uh, sort of feedback between environmental influence on the system and uh, a system on the environment so does it does it um, does it have this uh, sort of crosstalk in between
0: that's quite interesting so so far I think we're, we're in very early days in terms of what we've studied so far um so the first papers were all in simulation um, and we were always working with systems if memory serves where In a sense, our model of the environment was what you might call fixed in that whatever patterns the environment has to present, uh, the system um, is just kind of getting knocked around and responding to them. And then it gets into a state that eventually reflects something about the statistics of those patterns. But um, you could imagine a more active feedback relationship. Um, But I think that... uh, The thing there is that at a higher level, if you try to model that feedback relationship, there might be another sense in which you're just describing a passive environment that has more complicated rules, right? So the ability of the system to change the environment, you maybe could call that a, a response property of the environment that's just complicated, or you could just say it's sort of a, uh, a pattern to the environment. Well, I don't know. I guess I don't know. There, what's tricky is where you draw the box around the system and say this is an open system and and this is the environment outside versus this is the part of the system. So what do you call part of the system and what do you call part of the environment? I think that you're you're absolutely right that there are modeling frameworks that you could explore where you had more of a kind of almost like an adversarial relationship where the environment has rules for how it changes that are themselves kind of computational um, and depend to some degree on what the system does to it. Um, And I would expect the physics of the principles that we're arguing for here to still let you find dynamical attractors that were particularly stable uh, as a result of some kind of fine-tuned matching between the pattern behavior of the environment and the pattern behavior of the system. But I think we haven't studied that Yet in simulation, and we're we're on the brink of being in a position to do that in experiment. Um, we have this collaboration uh, with experimenters uh, at Georgia Tech and also at Northwestern, um, where we're doing this with swarm robotics. And you could easily envision a situation where you start making rules for how the robots behave that are system state dependent. Um, and once you start doing that, it's a it's a whole different can of worms. So that's actually a motivation for uh, a grant on algorithmic matter that we have from the Army Research Office right now that we're kind of in in the early months or years of pursuing.
1: Interesting. Yeah. And it sounds that uh, these simulations are probably going to be very computationally heavy as well.
0: Uh, Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's another thing to think about is, you know, how you want to approach this kind of science because on the one hand it's hard to beat simulations for just having exquisite control over every property of what goes on there but then you first of all you always have to worry about what happens when rubber meets road and you kind of go out into the world and and things are a little bit different um but also there's this computational cost that you mentioned i think that for this kind of science what i'm finding so far is that simulations are really essential because you can much more rapidly test consequences of assumptions you're making that are complex and that have to be tested empirically, almost like an experiment, um, than if you had to do the actual experiment. And so you can cover a lot of ground and sort of drive around in parameter space and try different things um, more rapidly in simulation. But ultimately, flipping this on its head, if you wanted to use self-organized energy absorption uh, minimization like this thing that i just described this one example of a lifelike behavior where you get this self-organized fine-tuned matching to the environment where you're robust and you you get knocked around less by the environment and you stay in a particular shape that has sort of moves in step with the pattern of the environment so um if you wanted to make that into a computing application i think one of the exciting things about it is maybe that you could do it with a naive material and then you could have A lot more bits to work with, right? That normally when we compute, we are talking about a number of tiny pieces of the world that we have exquisite control over, and somehow our our computing capability scales with that number uh, of extremely exquisitely controlled tiny pieces of the world. So if you instead say, oh, well, I could have a big mess, right? I could have a big uh, collective of unprogrammed particles or unprogrammed you know, lattice sites in a a material or what have you that has some disorder in how they interact so that their response properties can be different depending on what state they get knocked into, then maybe some of the learning and some of the self-organized response of the system might actually end up reflecting the result of a computation that gets to scale with, in some sense, the number of atoms you're working with, or at least something that's bigger than the number of bits that you have to program by hand. So There's an exciting opportunity maybe to think about what are the kinds of problems where you can compute at much lower cost in terms of programmed bits if you just have the right sort of disordered material or mess to use as what's called a a reservoir computer. Um, uh, And actually, there was a a paper several years ago where they even did an experimental version of this at ETH in Switzerland, um, where uh, they took a, a... octopus, a silicone octopus arm, and put it in a water tank attached to an actuator that was waving the octopus arm around in the tank, and there were motion sensors connected to the octopus arm. So it's this hopelessly complex mess in terms of turbulence and heterogeneous materials and whatever, and you can't really predict what it does, but it turns out you can use this mess... To compute something for you so if you just train a very simple linear single uh regression layer on the output uh, of all these motion sensors then you can train parameters that allow you to use this mess to compute the solutions of nonlinear differential equations that are getting input with a pattern of the actuator that you're just waving the the tentacle around with so there are things going on in a complex many-body mess that may be have harvestable computations in them. And I think some of what uh, this physical description that we've been pushing kind of from the standpoint of thermodynamics and which is talked about uh, in the book, that is something where you may have a systematic way of understanding what is being computed to some degree so that you could maybe design more powerful methods of harvesting the result of that computation.
1: Interesting, and uh, I think it would be a miss if I didn't ask you about relationship to Miller-Urey experiment. So in that experiment, uh, sort of the big concept is to produce the um, small organic molecules out of inorganic matter that might perhaps uh, go on to self-replicate at some point, but it hasn't been shown. So do you think that uh, computations that you actually mentioned could inform us on the components that are missing from the experiments like this? And uh, that's something that would could help us uh, uh, to uh, to compose better experiments to actually show it uh, in real life.
0: Yeah, so I, I think the answer to that question is is yes and no. So they, I'll, I'll split it into pieces. On the one hand, I think that if you look at the Miller-Urey experiment, it's obviously very seminal and, and very thought-provoking and and really points in one sense to the physical essence of what you need in order to get interesting architectural novelty uh, from basic building blocks, which is if it's a non-equilibrium system where you're driving it in some way, in, in the case of that experiment, I believe it was with an electrical shock, um, that you can push things into a different part of the combinatorial space of building blocks, which in that case was chemical space. Um, But I think what's tricky is that the question is, what are you going to be able to recognize about the relationship between the way you're driving the system and what you're getting as a result if the drive doesn't have a pattern that you have exquisite control over? So in that experiment, it's an electric shock. Uh, There may have been things that were complicated about that that were uncontrolled, but at the level of the experimenter, you don't have a lot of knobs that you're turning on that. It's not like a barcode. It's not like a, an unmistakable scent. It's, it's a voltage, you know, it's, it's a particular device that produces a particular shock, and you're not kind of changing the way you're driving it in this high-dimensional way. I think once you have the ability to change the way you're driving the system in a high-dimensional way, this is where the possibility of recognizing an emergent, fine-tuned relationship to that drive in the state of the system becomes much richer and much more possible. You're not going to be able to see that hand in glove fit if everything is living in this very low dimensional description where you have only a few knobs to turn. But once you can say, all right, I'll drive with a particular oscillation of a particular frequency. And then I can look and see in the system that it has all these frequencies at which it oscillates. And then I can see, does it oscillate better at this particular frequency that I chose or worse at this particular frequency that I chose. And and, and once you start, Generalizing and expanding on that to make the way you're driving the system even more specific and particular, then you start to be able to really recognize what kind of control over the evolution you have even before self replicators come into being because of the response properties of what emerges and how you can see a fine tuned matching there. So, in one sense, when I think about Miller Urey, I look at it as an archetypal example of a non equilibrium exploration of chemical space. But one where if I were to try to augment it in order to look for something new, it would be to try to somehow make the input high dimensional enough. And also my readout, my ability to assay what I'm actually getting as a result, high dimensional enough in terms of its response properties that I could start to probe for or claim some kind of control over the the exploration of chemical space. So on the other hand, uh, you mentioned self-replication. Uh, which we haven't touched on yet. And I I do think you can think separately about the physical question of how you would design conditions that were better or worse for getting to observe the emergence of self-replicators. And that's something we have written a paper about uh, uh, that came out, I believe, last year. um, And the lead author was Sumantra Sarkar. So uh, the basic idea there... (laughs) is that you're thinking about a lot of different possible combinations of building blocks that could lead to the emergence of different kinds of chemicals. Um, And when we imagine intuitively why it seems hard to get something to copy itself, there's, I think, uh, a limitation that comes from the fact that we focus in on the idea of a single self that's already complicated, that is gonna then make a copy of itself. And we just ask, well, where did that self come from? And, and most combinations of building blocks aren't seemingly good at copying themselves. But I think, and, and this is really, I think, reflected in a number of papers, some of ours, and also you know, plenty of others um, who are, are sniffing around the same area, the way that you can more straightforwardly rationalize the emergence of a collective uh, that is, copying itself is for it to emerge more sort of as a property of the ecology of molecules. If you have lots of different kinds of molecules and they can combine in lots of different kinds of ways, then the promiscuity of possible combinations starts to make it, in a statistical sense, much more reachable that if you have some energy source in the system, that there's going to be some combination, some group of different species of chemical that together happen to participate in what overall manifests as a positive feedback process that allows them to make more of themselves. They sort of go together instead of on their own. So if you want one unit that makes a copy of itself, uh, that's already very streamlined into its own little cell membrane, etc., um, it may be hard to, to see that spring out ex nihilo. But I think if you're looking instead at some kind of either very high initial energy or externally driven exploration of chemical space, it starts to be about the this, this specific statistics of how many different kinds of chemical reactions are allowed to happen um, a, and what fraction of them are going to form what are called autocatalytic loops um, and what fraction of those autocatalytic loops are going to have side reactions that constantly siphon off matter and thus prevent these loops from really getting going in an exponential way. Um, And it it, it does seem like uh, there are design principles that you could take into an experiment and just say, all right, how do I design uh, the possible chemical reactions that these building blocks are allowed to participate in so that the chemical diversity will have the right kinds of desirable properties in this regard, um, and if you did that, um, then you could probably save yourself some time waiting, um, because you know you wouldn't necessarily have to wait for as much of a rare event in order to see some kind of uh, initially slowly moving collective behavior in the system get going. Uh, but, but but it does seem like it's one of these problems where it's a question, you know, exactly how long you have to wait or exactly how likely it is. It, it comes down to Fine details of the parameters of how fast or slow different kinds of chemical reactions in, in the system are. Um, and so you could easily be in conditions where you might have to wait much longer than you're willing to, um, but you could also be in conditions where maybe uh, it could all happen uh, pleasingly faster, you know, shorter than the time it takes to get a PhD, perhaps.
1: Um, so within your uh, theory, um, so the thermodynamics component, does it imply that your systems tend to dissipate more energy as a net? Uh, for example, I, compared I would, to different systems. put
0: it differently. So the most general theoretical frame that motivated mm. us when we first started thinking about these questions was one where you have to talk about the history of the system. So dissipative adaptation isn't a single statement about the end state of some non-equilibrium evolution. It's more a statement about the history that a system has to have, in know, if it ends up in a likely outcome at the end of its dynamic. So I start with some matter, I press play, it's got energy flowing through it. There's dissipation happening, meaning it's losing a lot of the energy to the surroundings as heat. Um, and, and then over time it explores different shapes and ends up in some particular state. And it, generally ends up in a likely state for those dynamics, right? So if I'm not driving the system, then I'm just cooling down water into ice or something. The likely state is just going to be about how much I lower my energy and how many different ways there are of combining to get into a particular shape. So there's this classic trade-off in thermal equilibrium between lowering your energy and increasing your entropy. And that's the tug of war that you get there. But once I'm in a non-equilibrium system, the new things that matter are, first of all, if you're not willing to wait a long time, it matters where you start and how long it takes to get to where you're going, so it's you'll see things that are closer to where you started happen first, which is kind of trivial, but can still be the whole story depending on what kind of non-equilibrium system you're talking about. Um, or you can also end up in, situ- in situations where what really determined the likelihood of that likely outcome and made it much more likely than the other ones is a selection principle not based on its end state, but based on its history of absorbing work from the environment and dissipating. What it has to do with is that at each moment, you can think of the system as being like in a mountain range where as it moves from one place to another, that's like changing its shape. And the point is that if it gets a lot of energy input from the environment, it can climb a high mountain and fall down the other side, and then it can dissipate that energy as friction, and then it can't go back the way that it came. So the moments where you absorb a lot of energy from the environment are these key moments of irreversible structural change that leave their imprint as you evolve and change shape in this biased exploration uh, of the space of possible shapes you could be in sometimes that can lead to a positive feedback process. Self-replication, for example, is one example of that kind of a process. So natural selection, self-replication, that whole evolutionary principle is, in a sense, a special case of the description that the dissipative adaptation provides, where if you have a self-replicator, then you are in a positive feedback process that absorbs more energy and dissipates more energy over time as it turns through more fuel and makes more copies. Eventually, you know, you can't keep copying yourself forever. So the the way that looks at the end um, is not always growing in in its dissipation uh, because it reaches the limits of the working material that you're working with. But um, if you are in this transient exponential growth with self-replicators, then you have growing dissipation. And there also are Non-self-replicating examples of dissipative adaptation, where you get a fine-tuned positive feedback loop that grows your ability to absorb energy, but there's no self-copying kind of unit in the system. Instead, it's kind of a collective behavior that feels positive feedback. Um, so we had a paper in, in Physical Review Letters several years ago the leader author, author, of which was Tal Kachman, um, that was exactly about that. It was just kind of a mechanical network of catch bonds and springs, where if you shake one of them at a certain frequency, all the other ones organized to resonate better at that frequency and absorb energy from it better. So sometimes you're absorbing energy better, and you can even do that without self-replication, without the special case of the of natural selection. But you also can have Dissipative adaptation driven fine, I'll start again, but you also can have fine tuning that results from dissipative adaptation where it's a fine tuned ability to avoid absorbing energy from the pattern of the environment. And and again, the history is that you used to be in a work-absorbing state, but you got irreversibly kicked into states that were worse at absorbing energy. So there are kind of fine details in the chemistry, so to speak, of what you're working with that determine different kinds of collective behaviors. But there's more than one lifelike behavior that, that turns out that fits under this umbrella when you look at it from the perspective of the history of work absorption over time, and how that leads me to a stable dynamical attractor for my sister, and how that leads me to a stable dynamical attractor for my system um, after a long time.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a different perspective of how to look at it. I'm, I'm learning a lot, a lot of new concepts. So, um, could you perhaps? Uh, Um, sort of reflect on the theory and where do you still want to refine it a bit more or what sort of experiments you're still planning on doing? Sure, absolutely. So
0: um, some of this is touched on by what you referred to before, asking about more complicated feedback relationships with the environment um, and and carrying things into experiment. Uh, We have ongoing work uh, in the lab of Dan Goldman um, at Georgia Tech, and also in collaboration with um, Kurt Riesenthal there, uh, and also um, uh, in the lab of Todd Murphy at Northwestern, where we have been doing experiments with robot swarms, Um, and uh, we are trying to see how much control we can get over the collective behavior and and looking uh, for uh, relationships between the dynamical attractors that we see and uh the patterns of input that we provide the system with Um, and so that that's that's ongoing work um that's really part of a a larger um collaboration funded by the army research office that also involves other groups at mit and georgia tech and um uh, arizona state as well uh and uh so there's a whole kind of set of things that we're excited to dive into in the space of understanding the collective behavior of algorithmic matter, you know, so collectives made of pieces that individually act like simple computers um, and get you a more complex behavior uh, at the global level. Um, and, and then I think at the same time, uh, something that really was implicit in, in some of what we talked about before, and which I think is it's hard to dive into in the short term, but which I think is very exciting um, in, in the midterm is to think about what could this mean for what's going on in biological systems? Because as you may have noticed, a lot of what I was saying uh, over the course of this discussion really wasn't about biology. Uh, It was about taking physical systems that are simpler than living things and seeing lifelike behaviors emerge in them. But you could also now ask, well, now that I have a living thing, are there things going on in there that might actually be easier to understand if I have this physical frame? So, for example, if I think about a living cell, from a physical perspective, it's a bag of proteins where you have lots and lots and lots of different kinetically trapped systems made of many particles that are all coupled to each other on a larger scale, and they bind and unbind from each other and move around in ways that depend on how they absorb energy from a bath of chemical fuel that they're sitting in. So, if my interactions with my neighbors and my motions through space have to do with how I couple to chemical fuel. And also there's a feedback loop that closes where at the same time, the shape that I'm in and how I'm changing shape as the result of my interactions with my neighbors um, is really being impacted by the burning of that, that chemical fuel. Then I, I have the same kind of exploration of a high dimensional space of possibilities that could be going on where maybe some things are being computed by that collective behavior. So there's a really interesting literature right now uh, in biology that uh, is just getting going, discovering all the different kinds of drop- droplet-like, um, non-membrane-enclosed, multiprotein active collectives that form in cells under different conditions uh, based on the functional needs of the cell. And I think we have this tendency in biology maybe a little bit to le- lean too much in the direction of saying, well, if, if the cell is good at something or if life is good at something, it must be because there was selection at the level of uh, the organism reproducing or at least the meme or the gene you know, copying itself. And, and that I'm sure is true to some degree, even in cases um, where we have The possibility of a simpler explanation from sort of self-organized collective behavior because you have all this opportunity for evolution at the darwinian level to refine through selection um, what the parameters are of the system that being said we should be asking the question how much useful computation and adaptation can i get for a cell from some kind of naive idea of a cytosol, a a collection of proteins that has the ability to change its shape according to a chemical fuel and bind and unbind to each other and change each other's shapes and all the things that you need for that explosion of of complex uh, exploration of of configuration space. Uh, But how smart could that soup be even before it's part of a cell that's subject to selection at the level of, of the whole organism. Um, I think that that's the interesting question, because right now there might be things that we are hiding from us in plain sight in biological function simply because we didn't realize we should be looking for it in the right way.
1: Yeah, and you explain it very succinctly as well in, in the book. And I think for me, uh, what's the uh, one of the main appeal appeal of uh, this theory is actually maybe taking it a step further into multicellular uh, uh, organisms, for example, uh, because at this level, the cells actually do control their environment very tightly. So, for example, your osteoclast, uh, the bone cell, it finds itself in a very very restricted environment, which it actually produces itself mostly. So even, even going there uh, with the interaction with the environment, uh, perhaps there are some constrictions that the cell itself or replication, replicating entity can enforce on, onto its environment as not to be influenced mm-hmm. from the outside. I don't know, maybe you think it's going a little bit too far, but uh, somewhere along well, the lines. I,
0: I can't rule out the possibility that we'll understand something down the line in a system that complicated, but I am... At the end of the day, uh, like many theoretical physicists, trying to find things that are simpler to see if there's a chance of, of making progress with them first, because even the simple things end up seeming hopelessly complicated. So, um, but but yeah, I, I, I do think that this is a conversation that can and should start because we really have already all these hints and examples. You know, for, it used to be we talk about prions um, and, and we thought of them as these disease proteins where it's a a special protein that um, copies its shape uh, by imposing in a templated way that same shape on other copies of the same protein um, and that caused bad cow disease or Kuru or whatever. And then we start to hear stories about, okay, there's a protein like SUP35 in yeast, which really is a prion that the cell uses for a functional purpose. And before you know it, what you should be asking yourself is why shouldn't I think of every protein not as being a prion necessarily, but as being a thing like a prion in that it can maybe influence the shapes that other partners it interacts with are in. And it might be doing that in a way that depends on the access that those combinations of partners have to energy in the environment, to power the configurational changes that are going on. And once you open up the field that way, it's just a whole lot could be happening that is much more specialized about how this collective sorts itself into a particular shape as a whole than we may necessarily yet recognize.
1: Yeah, interesting that you can actually take it uh, a few steps further, as you explained. So going all the way from molecules, then to slightly more complicated systems, to the cellular level, and perhaps maybe later on even further. We'll see. (laughs) Okay, so let's uh, shift our gears a little bit. And another part of your book is um, slightly different. So um, going from this very, very scientific discussion. So in addition to your splendid career as a world-class physicist, you're also an ordained rabbi. Is that right? So can you uh, tell us how this experience enriched your understanding of uh, the life's origins and how did it make you think slightly differently? Um,
0: well, I, I think that there's a, there's a few different um, levels to that. Actually, one of the things I mentioned going back to um, it, originally thinking about physics and biology as different languages. Uh, if I'm honest, I have to admit that I first started becoming interested in that kind of epistemological or philosophical question uh, because I was reading the Book of Genesis, um, and I was interested in you know how to find ways of reading it where. I could hold what I know about what science helps me discover about the world in one hand and still take the text seriously as knowing more than I do and, and having something to teach me about how to understand what the world is and what science is and all of that. Um, and, and one of the things I noticed in there is that, um, you know, you really start with one of the most famous lines and God said, let there be light and there was light. Um, we, we just trip over that one without, I think, realizing one possible fundamental message that it it carries, which is that the light by which we see the world can come from the way we talk about it. Meaning that we have choices to make that are at the very beginning of our understanding of the world, of what language to use to describe the world. And we can describe the same world using different languages and come to different kinds of understanding. And they're not contradictory necessarily, or they're not in you know, a, a battle to see whose single language can eventually triumph and, and conquer and, and be the only one that is appropriate, you may just need more than one language in order to best describe and get at different things about what's going on. And so biology and physics are an example of that phenomenon, I think. And I probably was less disposed to um, recognize that until I was contemplating uh, this question in, in how to read Genesis. But you know, that was a long time ago, and I think it was just kind of planted an intellectual seed that ended up uh, sprouting into a curiosity uh, that led my research in a certain direction. But then I think for a while, as far as the, the research, as I was describing, I think it was really driven just by kind of, oh, I want to understand... How you know biology and, and physics can can be made to work together in this way and and, and describe emergence of, of these lifelike behaviors and then much later after a lot of that work had developed on the science side um, I was thinking more about another passage uh, in the Hebrew Bible that uh, is a very famous one where Moses is encountering God at the burning bush um, on Mount Sinai before his a journey to liberate the Hebrews uh, from slavery in Egypt, and there are these three signs that God gives to Moses at the burning bush, uh, which are very uh, particular and 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 each have many details that you can analyze. Um, one of which is throw it, one is uh, one of these signs is throwing a staff on the ground and having it turn into a serpent. One of them is that Moses's skin becomes snowy and and afflicted with a kind of a a snowy anomaly on it um, which is sometimes mistranslated as leprosy uh and one of them is that he pours the the water of the nile uh on the dry ground and it becomes blood and when i started thinking about this passage from the perspective of the boundary between life and non-life which i guess i was disposed to be thinking about anyway i realized that all three of these signs among other things, refer to that boundary, right? Because the serpent uh, is a thing that's alive that a moment ago was just a staff that was not alive or because the anomaly in Moses' skin is a disruption in the boundary of his body, right? It's the boundary of a living thing, skin. Um, and and there's kind of an ambiguity there in the sense that snow is itself a thing that it's very hard to actually actually trace the boundary uh, if you look at it closely. Um, and then lastly, of course, you know, turning water on the dry ground to blood is maybe the most obvious one. and And so I think once I went down that path, I realized there was a lot more, perhaps, than I'd initially expected that could be viewed as a commentary in the text on what it's like to contemplate the boundary between life and non-life from a qualitative perspective uh, and and from a very human perspective, from one rooted in the experience of the human being. And I've written the book, Every Life is on Fire, in a way where that contemplation is interwoven chapter by chapter uh, with the discussion of the physics. So I think if we counted by words, there's much more physics than discussion of biblical text in the book. Uh, but every chapter has a, a frame that's based on uh, discussion of of these signs and these details uh, from this passage uh, in the book of Exodus uh, where where Moses encounters God at the burning bush. And I did that for a variety of different kinds of reasons. One of them is simply that I actually found that, that it's a very valuable pedagogical tool in some sense because the Bible addresses itself to the everyday experience of the human being in an untechnologized way. Uh, and yet, metaphorically, it appreciates quite precisely some things that are actually important to understanding what is. Making things tick at the bottom when you're trying to describe these physical emergence uh, uh, kind of scenarios in non-equilibrium physics, and it's hard to unpack what one means by that, you know, without going into the details of the book. But I, I, for those who are curious, you know, that's one thing I hope it accomplishes. So even if someone's not particularly interested per se in what there is to to read in the Bible, I hope that it actually makes the physics clearer to understand by talking in these terms and getting back to uh, some kind of everyday uh terms and emblems and signs and 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 metaphors um while trying to make sense of what the physics is saying Uh, at the same time personally i also think that you can't really talk about the boundary between life and non-life without arousing some broader philosophical contemplations about what it means to be alive and what the purpose of or point of it is Um, and I'm aware that I can't kind of wade into that discussion just claiming I only want to talk about the physics without triggering a broader one. And so I kind of didn't want to miss the opportunity to comment myself. Uh, and, and and this is the language in which I'm comfortable commenting. You know, if we're going to talk about something philosophical, the way that I know how to do that uh, is to talk in the terms um, for those kinds of contemplations that are established in Uh, the Hebrew Bible and the Jewish tradition. And so that's another aspect of the book for those who are are seeking that. And um, I hope it's at least an enjoyable edition. Um, But I I wanted most of all to just kind of demonstrate uh, by example that you can take the science completely seriously and you can take the biblical scripture completely seriously. And you can do that in a way that respects both ways of understanding things about the world and, and that doesn't see any kind of incoherence or conflict or contradiction between them Um, because that's certainly how I view things and uh, it would have seemed uh, a missed opportunity to me if I didn't give others a window into that way of thinking while I was trying to explain all of these ideas.
1: Yeah, I appreciate how you approach these uh, quite complex concepts head-on basically and um and quite a lot of with a lot of humility as well which is uh, pretty admirable so can you uh, comment on the responsibility of the scientists who are asking and exploring these fundamental questions about how life began should they consider the philosophical part of it well, as well
0: in one sense i think that it's fine to say for any given person engaged in scientific work that if they want to define their contribution and their task as I'm going to work within the framework of these assumptions and I'm going to look at these empirical observations and I'm going to try to make sense of things in these terms and they're not personally interested in zooming out or, or sort of talking in other languages about it. Um, it's not that I necessarily deeply find fault with someone you know, if, if, if they're going to say this is as far as I want to go with it. What I just encourage everyone to try to bring to the broader discussion is enough humility uh, and enough openness to to recognize that there are intellectually deep approaches to taking the biblical scripture seriously that can't be dismissed on the basis of how successful science is at predicting the world. I think sometimes there's maybe a, a cultural meme among scientists or, or maybe a broader cultural meme among people who see science as um, a highest authority about what is true about the world to say that we've already realized using science that there's nothing true about, or at least a lot that's, laughably untrue about what the Bible comes to teach. Um, And I think that people who line up along that line of scrimmage usually are laboring under some kind of misunderstanding about what science really can tell us about the world versus what it can't, or some kind of misunderstanding about how the text of the Hebrew Bible is really meant to be read in order for its treasures to be revealed, or Both. You know, they they might be confused on both counts, but um, I think it's common to be confused on at least one of them. Uh, And the more that people have respect and humility as they come into this conversation uh, and and can really say, I'm I'm eager to learn how to bring intellectual depth into both aspects of this discussion, I think the better. And, And we'll get somewhere better in terms of what we can learn in that conversation.
1: Yeah, very well, well said that you don't really have to compromise yourself as an intellectually honest scientist if you also can consider all of these these other concept, concepts as well. So, just to round up our discussion, I'd like to ask perhaps the most obvious but quite complex and at the same time exhilarating question. So, in words of Erwin Schrodinger, Jeremy, what
0: is life? I'm probably going to give an unsatisfyingly evasive answer to that question. Um, Sorry, I'll start again. I'm probably going to give an unsatisfyingly evasive answer to that question because I I think that one of the things I've learned and tried to convince others of uh, in the course of, of starting to study this area is that the beginning point of this discussion really is to give up on the idea that physics is going to tell us what life is uh, any more so than, because we shouldn't be expecting that any more so uh, than um, we would expect uh, someone speaking uh, in one language to reveal the meaning uh, to a fluent speaker. Actually, I'll... Just scratch that. I'll I'll say again. Um, I think that in order to make sense of how life is distinctive and different from other ways that matter can be put together, what we end up having to do is talk in a language that is by definition agnostic about what is alive or isn't. So you come in as a physicist and you say, I have my yardstick, I have my chronometer, I have my scale, I can start quantifying things and I can make theories of how these quantities relate to each other, but the word life is one whose meaning was relatively clear to us before we had much natural science to speak of. It was uh, a word that's useful and meaningful in delineating everyday boundaries between things like fish and people on the one hand and rocks and ice on the other hand and so if you have a word you can start to break apart the different connotations of that word and i think scientific progress from a physical standpoint really comes from taking those different pieces and addressing them each on their own which means that i don't get physics to tell me what life is but i more get to uh, appreciate from a different perspective the different kinds of physical processes that might have had to combine and, and, and contribute to get life going. And really, if you read What is Life by Erwin Schrodinger, uh, you might have also titled that book, which is a wonderful monograph um, uh, on, on this topic and, and a deeply insightful one. You might have titled that book, What Are the Different Kinds of Physical Behavior That Are Distinctively and Impressively Lifelike? I mean, he was very much interested in that kind of uh, rumination on life. Uh, I do think that is where a way forward scientifically lies, um, but I, I don't think that it uh, gives us authority to r- sort of gerrymander the definition of what the word life means. That's a discussion that uh, you don't have to be a scientist in order to weigh in on.
1: That's a really snappy alternative title <laughs> for Erwin Schrödinger's book. <laughs> But yeah, absolutely. So perhaps we just we need to start refining the way we're actually asking this question in a way that, which is Indeed. meaningful, perhaps. So, uh, Jeremy, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you just tell us what are you working on now and what are your projects in the near future?
0: So I think that in the near term, the thing that I'm very excited about um, and very engaged in are the experimental collaborations that uh we've been getting going based around the idea of can we use these principles to start to control and predict the behavior of collectives that are capable of some more uh lifelike features uh so on the one hand it's it's certainly very uh captivating and and exciting to try to cast a glance backward and and imagine what it might have been like for for life to come into being, Uh, it's also in practice extremely difficult to gather forensic evidence um, about that moment. Um, And what's much more experimentally feasible is to say, what can I build? What new thing can I make uh, that will demonstrate how these physical principles play out and, and show that we have predictive power and control. And so the first place that we've been trying to do that experimentally is in swarm robotics. Um, I think it really pertains much more broadly to a whole area in experimental non-equilibrium physics called active matter. And beyond that as well, uh, into material science and chemistry, because wherever you have a patterned energy source that keeps a system away from equilibrium, you can have biased exploration of a space of possible combinations of building blocks. So if you have a diverse enough working material with lots of different possible response properties that it could discover by combining in different ways, and you have a way of patterning the drive so that you can bias exploration of that space in a way that you have some ability to control and predict, uh, then you may be able to discover new things in the control of the search of chemical space, in the control of the search of colloidal assembly space and active matter, uh, in the search of... Material space, if you're talking about uh, either active metamaterials or even uh, you know, as has arisen in one discussion uh, we had with an experimenter, um, uh, ceramics subject to radiation. There's all sorts of different systems that are made of bits and pieces that can combine in different ways, and where the rearrangement of those combinations can be powered by energy absorption that can have a pattern to it. And so I think it's just the beginning of convincing more kinds of experimentalists to explore uh, the frontier before us. And I am I, very excited to see what comes out.
1: Yeah, that sounds really fascinating, uh, lines of uh, of research, absolutely. And one can see the um, implementation in a real life, really, uh, for for. Yeah,
0: one thing I, I also will add on top of that is that I think that some of what we're talking about you really could start to try to generalize beyond even the thermodynamic description. Um, and and this is already hinted at in, in one of uh, the papers um, that we put out while I was still at MIT um, with a, a gra- then a grad student and now a postdoc um, I'm still working with named Pavel Chivakov. So uh, the one version of a dissipative adaptation effect is what we call least rattling, which I was referring to before as this rearrangement of the system into a pattern of motion that is less violently rearranged by the energy that it's absorbing from the environment. Um, And really the least rattling idea applies to dynamical systems, even where you don't have all of the bells and whistles of thermodynamics, where you talk about work and heat and dissipation and energy flow. Really what we're just talking about is if I have many variables and some of them end up, kind of determining how much randomness there is in the motion of some of the other variables, then you can end up in a situation where the system fine-tunes to have less noise in its motion, because if things get less noisy, then they kind of tend to cool down, like they're effectively not as driven to randomly jump into new shapes, and so they end up getting stuck in the shapes that they're in. So you can have this kind of self-organized, fine-tuned loss of randomness in motion, in a wide variety of dynamical systems, including ones where it's not even really well-defined to talk about them in thermodynamic terms. And so you you mentioned you're a neuroscientist before, I haven't begun to think about whether you can start to make sense of networks of neurons this way, Um, but I certainly don't rule it out at the outset um, that that might be a class of many body dynamical systems where some kind of self-organized attractors that you see in the dynamics Uh, could be ones that might be understood this way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's uh, one of the focus of computational neurosciences. And even from an experimental point of view, that's exactly what we're seeing. But we're seeing um, in the network-wise more of an outside environment influence uh, which can have on on these nodes. So take, uh, for example, if we want to take uh, completely um, sort of... uh, extreme example is the people who are born with just one uh, hemisphere in the brain. They have the um, uh, the pathways that are pretty much similar to the people who are born with the two uh, halves of the brain. So it sort of starts compensating and making the tracks uh, between the synapses and obviously it's much more complicated than that. But again, it's, it all depends on the environment and this reinforcement in between the nodes. Great. So, um, so do you think this sort of biased emergent behavior could be useful, um, in practice in somewhere like exploration of space, for example, if we want to send, uh, like swarms of robots that we want them to perform specific uh, tasks under specific conditions? Do you think it's something that could be used for? It?
0: Well, I'm not an engineer, and so I should leave that kind of speculation to someone who has a remote idea of of what works or doesn't work. Um, I, I think swarm robotics uh, is something I've gotten into recently as a very exciting experimental setting in which to try to develop some predictive control uh, using physical principles that I maybe understand a little bit. But I think from the standpoint of what we're trying to get them to do, and how to take something quite abstract and theoretical and, and turn it into um, something more usable and operationalized, I certainly would would need to prevail in the expertise of others rather than speculate myself.
1: Hopefully, this also will inspire some new engineers to look beyond uh, to you know to what people are generally used to looking within the field. Okay, so. Um, Can you tell us where our listeners can find more information about your book and also about your work, so papers?
0: Sure. Um, So there is um, a page on uh, the group website, which is englandlab.com, where you can find out about current publications uh, and things of that nature. I also have a handle on Twitter, which is at lifelikephysics, just one word, lifelikephysics. Um, and uh, if people are, are curious, uh, they also can email me at j Excellent.
1: And we will have uh, uh, information in the show notes as well. Well, uh, thank you very much for being on the show today. I have learned a lot of stuff. It's really interesting. And hopefully our listeners also will be inspired to uh, look into it and uh, get the book, which is the Every Life is on Fire. So thank you very much for being with us today, Jeremy. And uh, any last messages for our listeners?
0: Thank you. It's been a great pleasure.